So over the next seven weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Ruth. It's traditionally read in the Jewish synagogues in May and June, the time of the barley harvest in which our story is set. So we are being exceedingly traditional. We're a very traditional church. We like to do things traditionally. But it's not just the the seasonal resonance that connects with us. Thematically, it very much connects with today's world. Although there is actually a clear sense that this story was written down, even then looking at a past era. In Ruth, we're going to explore themes of social migration, of social welfare, of ethical business practice, of work, patriarchy, the family, and interracial marriage. Anyone who watched the royal wedding last week and cannot help but start to draw some comparisons. But Ruth isn't just an interesting read as we reflect upon the world around us. Ruth is focused upon the personal lives of individuals and invites us to consider our own relationship with God and with each other. Ruth doesn't feature any dreams or visions or prophetic words. To begin with, actually, it's just one tragedy followed by another. Characters even begin to question the value of living a life of integrity in terribly tough times. So if you're, hug- if you're struggling to hear God, if you're feeling abandoned, bereaved, despairing, or simply cannot imagine how anything great can come from your ordinary life, then I believe that Ruth will be refreshing, encouraging, gloriously hopeful, and even challenging, but in a good way. If your dreams fade, if your loved ones pass away, if your career fails, then God can feel distant. And Ruth and Naomi's story begins with death, and with famine, and with poverty. And God remains silent. But even before the end of the first chapter, we can see that an end to their despair is coming. This story is beautifully hopeful. So if you need some hope in your life today, then you're in the right place. So let's begin. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now the opening words of our story tell us that this takes place in the time of the judges. That is the time before Israel had a king. And the form and the expression of the introduction tells us that this book was written at a later time, although it's likely that it existed as an oral story before then. The earliest possibility is that Ruth was written in the time of King David, as the genealogy at the end finishes with him. However, the way that the writer needs to explain the legal customs suggests that the date may be much, much later. It's got to me the feel of a period drama. Imagine it's Sunday evening, you're drawing up, it's the end of the day, you've got your cup of tea in front of you and maybe a blanket over your knees and you're tucked up ready to enjoy this, this period drama, looking back at a time long past. Well, there's a, there's a strong possibility that Ruth was written after the exile. 
And as we examine some of the themes in the story in the coming weeks, we may see the evidence that suggests so. But Ruth is a short story. And probably the best thing you could do is to go home and to sit down and to read it all in one go. It will take you a little over 20 minutes to read it at a leisurely pace. And it's designed to be read in one go. It's not just a short story to read, it's also a short story in genre. The writer reveals the characters rather than develops them as the plot unfolds before us. And it's got a message to communicate. You could call it an ideological fiction. Although I do believe that, that Ruth and Naomi were people that existed. But the way that the characters are described to us are almost fairy tale like They're there to, to communicate a message. And the reason for that is that this isn't written as a historical account. The writer's not even attempting to do that. In fact, it wasn't located amongst the history section of the Jewish Bible, but amongst the writings, amongst the wisdom literature, in five texts that were called the scrolls, alongside Song of Songs and Esther, Ecclesiastes and Lamentation. So that's a little bit of the when. Verse 2 introduces us to the who. The man's name, and I always say this wrong because I want to say it the way that it really is kind of broken down. But let's have a go. Elimelech. Come on. First time right. I'll tell you why it's hard to say in a minute. And his wife's name was Naomi. We can all do that one. And the name of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. And they, here's another great one for us, were Epaphraphites. From Bethlehem. It's a wonder why they dropped that name and started just saying that they're from Bethlehem, isn't it? Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now, names are important in the Old Testament, even if you can't say them. They speak of the character of the person. They were important to the Hebrew. And they're especially important here in Ruth. Now, that name that I can't ever say right, Elimelech. The reason I can't say it right is because it's actually three Hebrew words. And I've no idea whether the way that we say it in church, that we've decided is the right way to say it, is even close to right. Because if you break the Hebrew down, it's El, which means God. And then the last bit is Melech, which, which is we get from the word for king. And the, the, the E bit in the middle, um, it refers to the possessives. That's saying it's my. So... I would say Eli Melech, because that's breaking down the word quite comfortably, and obviously is the way it's written, but for some reason in Christianese we want to call him Elimelech. Anyway, his name means God is king, or my God is king. That's what his name means. So forget about how you've got to say it, just remember what it means. Naomi means pleasant, or lovely, or delightful. A great name for a wife in any fairy tale. Marlon means to be weak or sick. And Chilion means failing, pining, or wasting away. Basically, there's two sons that are called sick and dying. Not likely to be top of the baby names for 2018. They were, in fact, old names. They were old Canaanite names. We read also that they were Epaphrathites. 
That is the earlier name for Bethlehem. And there's little guess for why they changed it just saying that they're from Bethlehem. The use of the older name may serve to connect them with the old established families. Certainly when Naomi returns, the whole town is stirred, we heard read before. She's clearly well known. The Jewish Midrash even interprets the word as meaning aristocrats. So they may well be the local aristocrats of Bethlehem who decide in a time of famine to leave when clearly many of us stayed. So why did they choose to go when everyone else decided to stay? Well, it could be that the place that they choose to go to is just too shocking for anyone else to consider. Moab was located on a plateau east of the Dead Sea and populated by the descendants of Lot's relationship with his own daughters. You can read about it yourself in your own leisure. Previous interactions with the Moabites were less than positive. In the story of Israel, when they come up, it usually features unfriendliness, to put it mildly, or sexual immorality and spiritual adultery. The Moabites were worshippers of Chemosh, a god to whom human sacrifice was apparently made. We're not really told why they leave and the others don't. But there does seem to be a bit of an irony here in this action. Elimelech, I'm on a roll, I'm on a roll. Elimelech, the breadwinner of the family whose name is a great statement of faith, doesn't appear to be living up to his name. Doesn't appear to be putting in his trust in God. Rather than trusting in God's sovereignty and God's reign, he goes out to find his own way. Secondly, Bethlehem literally means house of bread, where there's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. And so they move out, and after the death of Elimelech, from the house of bread, there's no breadwinner left. And so, as the Cockney would say, he's brown bread. He's dead. Notice in verse 3 that he's described as Naomi's husband. This is a bit surprising. It's got to be said. It's rare for a man to be characterized by his wife. As we go through this story, it is worth considering whether patriarchy is left unchallenged or if Naomi and Ruth push the social boundaries. We'll explore that on another day. Really, the central character in all of this is in some sense Naomi. It's her story, it's her dilemma that's resolved. Ruth actually speaks the least of all the characters. Naomi's sons take Moabite wives. Moab is not listed amongst the Canaanite tribes for which intermarriage is forbidden in Deuteronomy. But their descendants were not permitted to enter the worshipping assembly for ten generations. Although that prohibition could be understood to just affect marriage to Moabite males and not cover the taking of a Moabite wife. By the end of verse 5, these two sons, sickly and dying, are dead. The writing was on the wall, you could say. 
And so we're left with three widows. And widows were particularly vulnerable. They didn't have the same legal standing as men. And Naomi has heard now that the Lord has come to the aid of his people. That there is bread in the house of bread once again. And so she sets out to return. And then we encounter the very first piece of dialogue in our story. 50 out of the 85 verses are speech. 678 of the 1,294 words by the author, a direct speech. This is a drama. And Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to return to their own mothers. She states, may the Lord show kindness to you. Kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, or hesed, however you want to say it. It's a rich word at the heart of God's covenant relationship with his people. One commentator describes how it combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. It's a key word for us as the story continues. Look out for it. We often see it written as loving kindness in the Bible. And so Orpah, she kisses her and she leaves her behind. She leaves Naomi. And her name, incidentally, is a Moabite name. But it's got the same root as the Hebrew word for neck. She turns her neck and she leaves. The last that Naomi sees of her is the back of her neck walking away. In contrast, Ruth is determined to stay. And her name means friendship. Another key theme to our story. As Naomi urges her to follow Orpah and to go with her, Ruth commits herself to Naomi with the most remarkable of language. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What an amazing statement of faith that we've got here from Ruth. And when they reach Bethlehem, this is contrasted with Naomi's crisis of faith. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi's theology is raw and it's honest. She still believes that God exists. That he is sovereign over all things. But she sees her circumstances to be a punishment an affliction from God. And when people go through a desperate time, they will often attribute it to God. Naomi's theology isn't necessarily right, but there's something here that's true. There's a, a sense of it the scriptures here capture the truth of human emotion in a crisis of faith, similar to the laments of the psalmists. In the bitterness of life, 
God's providence seems hard for Naomi to accept. But actually, there's some tremendous signs of hope here in the last verse. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. She's got a true friend and a companion in Ruth. She's not alone. She's not alone. I wonder, who is God drawing alongside you in your place of struggle? Or who is God calling you to draw alongside in their place of struggle? The narrator of the story doesn't really speak of God being at work. It's, it's the characters who speak of God's providence. And it's through the people that we see God at work. So who is God at work through to minister to you? Or who does God want to work in you and through you too? Secondly, second sign of hope is that the barley harvest is beginning. God has taken away the famine, opened a way for Naomi to come home. And as we will see, he will provide for her and her family. But she can't see it yet. But from this barley harvest will come the continuation of her family line. And from her descendants will come the great King David, who will foreshadow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So if you feel hopeless and abandoned, bitter and empty, may the story of Ruth fill you with hope. Ruth gives us a glimpse of the hidden work of God in the very worst of times. So what are the signs of hope in your circumstances today? What are the signs of hope that are right there but you've not even realized they're there? Can you see them? God has provided a way for each of us to come home to him in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Today we come to his table. We come to him to receive from him, to be filled with hope.